Welcome to a new episode of Policy Implications Podcast, where policy meets research. I'm your host, Olga Zadorozhna from Kozminsky University, where I teach and do research in empirical economics. My guest today is Dr. Abilasha Sahai, who's an economist at the Africa Gender Innovation Lab at the World Bank Group. Her research interests include development economics and economics of crime, with a key focus on topics in gender. Today, we'll be discussing her recent paper called The Silenced Women. Can public stimulate reporting of violence against women? This paper raises a very important topic, which is whether increased awareness about violence directed towards women can increase the reporting of these crimes. So welcome, Avilasha, and let's get started. But before we dive into the discussion of the paper, please tell us more about your research uh, expertise and how did you become interested in the topic of gender and crime against women? Hi, thank you, Hola. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure being here. Um, so uh, let me start with just telling you a little bit about the motivation on my for my research interests. So as you mentioned, broadly, I'm interested in topics at the intersection of gender and development economics, and in particular for gender-based violence, which I think is one of the most palpable manifestations of gender discrimination. My motivation kind of stems from both personal as well as professional realizations. So I grew up in uh, Delhi, which is unfortunately deemed as the rape capital. And growing up, I think as a young girl, I was always very wary and conscious of my gender from the perspective of women's safety. I was always sort of aware of my actions, mobility in terms of at what time of the day I can move out, where I can move out. So I think, you know, those um, bit by bit, those realizations and experiences um, got me very interested in this topic as to what are the reasons for violence against women. And more professionally, when I joined the PhD program, out of both personal and um, intellectual curiosity, I really wanted to understand what is the scholarship on this topic? What, the, what does the scholarly work have to say? And just from looking at the empirical evidence from across different contexts, soon I you know, realized it, that this is not something just confined to India, but it's a global issue, a critical global issue so the prevalence of violence against women is alarmingly pervasive and quite high. One in three women have experienced some form of violence throughout their lifetime. And that could be either intimate partner violence or violence outside of the home in the public sphere. And what was also interesting to find is that while the prevalence is quite high, several women don't report these cases. So the level of formal reporting is also very low. As per a recent global study that was done in 2013, it is found that only 7% of women who have actually experienced any form of violence have gone ahead and reported it to a formal source, such as the police, the medical services, or the social services. And this to me was very, very stark, um, which got me thinking about, you know, what are some of the interventions and changes that can stimulate reporting of violence against women. So that's how I went about conceiving my research question and this paper called The Silenced Women. 
Yes, yeah, very interesting. And, you know, just to share my personal experience, uh, you were saying that when you were growing up, you had to be conscious about the times when you had to move out or just, you know, walk around the city. And it was the same, pretty much the same for me. And I grew up in Ukraine. So I think yeah. it's, it's very much everywhere in the world like that, unfortunately. Exactly. Yeah. But your paper is centered around a very specific incident of violence uh, against a young girl that happened in Delhi in 2012. Could you please tell us more about this particular incident and how the public reacted to it? Sure, sure. Thanks, Ola. Um, so, you know, this specific incident, I think, has been one of the most brutal and heinous acts of crimes against women. It took place on the 16th of December 2012 in Delhi, where a young physiotherapist student was violently gang raped on a moving bus. And this is, uh, a, you know, the circumstances of the incident were such that it was a very business as usual uh, event where, you know, a young girl was going, returning home from the movies. She was accompanied with a male friend. She just took a public bus to get back home, right? And it was around in, in the evening time, not very late at night, you know, so all those, some the society tells us that, okay, there are these, this is a rule book that you have to follow to keep yourself safe. And despite following that rule book, if, if this kind of an act happens, if this is, uh, if a crime of such a gory nature happens to you, it is extremely disturbing. And I think that is one of the reasons why this specific incident resonated so much with the masses, where people were angered. There were series of protests and demonstrations across the entire country. Thousands of men and women took to the streets seeking justice for the victim and demanding a structural change in how violence against women is perceived and dealt with in the country. And you know, this incident was also widely covered in the media, both internationally and nationally. I'm sure that several of your listeners may have heard and read about um, this case. And it also paved the way for several policing and legislative reforms. But I think most importantly, one of the most salient aftermath of this incident was a lot more dialogue on this issue. It, uh, it sparked a lot of public debate on this issue, which was previously always sort of you know, kept under the carpet, it was swept under the rug, that this is not something we should talk about. So people started challenging that notion. And over time, I, I do think, and this is something we should find in the results of this paper, that it influenced disclosure norms and people's willingness to talk about such issues. Talk about such issues, but also probably report the crimes that happened exactly. to them, right? Exactly. And did you find any statistics on the increase in reporting of those crimes after the incident? Right, exactly. So, you know, one of the main results of this paper is that, uh, and initially when I found this, I, I found this a little intriguing because I'm finding a significant increase in the reported rates of violence against women. And this is across different crime categories, rape, kidnapping and abduction of women, sexual assault, dowry deaths, cruelty by husband or his relatives, which is a form of intimate partner violence. And I'm finding that effect to be the, 
to the tune of around 30% increase, which is, which is a substantial uh, increase accounting for all the econometric, uh, uh, you know, the controls that I have uh, used to ensure that this is not a statistical artifact, but it is actually something that is stemming after this incident. And I think to your question on specifically on reporting, I also find important evidence which suggests that a major part of this increase in reported rates was actually coming from an increase in survivor disclosure. So I've constructed a measure of lag in reporting of cases, um, which I've done through using a new data set that I compiled. It's a daily incident level data set that provides a lot of rich contextual information at the incident level. In this data set, I have been able to observe both the date when a crime occurs and the date when a crime gets reported. Using these two dates, I'm able to construct a measure of lag in reporting of cases, which is used as a proxy of the reporting bias that can creep in in cases of violence against women. On average, I'm finding that among cases of violence against women, the average lag is 370 days, so more than a year. That is the extent of bias that we are talking about. And this is much higher if you compare it with other gender neutral crimes, which is around 120 days. So, and then again, if, if I have to look at this in a more formal regression framework, I'm finding that this magnitude of lag reduces around 35% after this shock, which again, gives us this suggestive evidence to show that a major part of this increase in reported rates was actually because more women are coming forward and reporting their own experiences rather than an increase in occurrence of crimes. And first of all, I have, well, now I have two questions. The first question <laughs> is why do you think women tend to not report these crimes? That's the first, right. and then the second one, how this particular incident and the uh, uh, public awareness that followed helped women overcome their fears or you know, some, some cultural norms towards reporting the crime? Exactly, those are great questions. So I think to the first one on um, barriers of reporting, right? And this has been um, well-documented in past scholarship as well that there could be several barriers or impediments that deter women from reporting, especially formally. You know, there could be a situation where they report it informally, but that doesn't necessarily lead to justice. Now, some of the impediments for formal reporting, the most salient one is the stigma associated with cases of gender-based violence. There's a lot of shame and societal pressure associated with being a victim of gender-based violence. So even if you may want to go ahead and report people around you in your household, uh, in your neighborhood, um, in the fear of being discriminated against from them, you may tend to not report. The second important factor which has been identified in the scholarship is distrust of institutions. So a lot of times women may feel that nothing is going to come out of reporting. There's no point in actually going ahead and reporting and therefore they don't. The third one could be fear of perpetration by the one by the person who has um, 
committed this crime. And this is especially uh, true for cases where the perpetrator is known to you. And that happens in majority of the cases that the person who has done this crime is somebody within your family. It's an intimate partner. It's a, it's your boss. It's a colleague. And it's, you know, in an economist term, it's, it's repeated game, right? So there is this fear that I will, if I report, I will be subjected to more abuse. Then in certain sections, there's also a lot of financial and information barriers. So how to go about reporting? Who do I contact? How do I go through the entire process of seeking justice if I don't have the financial or the information um, bandwidth to do that? And then I think lastly, but quite importantly, in certain cultural settings, there's also a strange sense of high tolerance towards violence against women, where you know, people have been normalized that this is just something that it's it's a part and parcel of women's life and they should just accept it and move on. You know, this is people have gotten conditioned to it. So I think it's an interplay of several of these factors that really deter women from reporting cases. And in this specific incident and the public activism that followed, it is interesting to find that it could have, again, empirically, it's difficult to disentangle all the changes that took place after it, but it seems to have attacked one or more of these barriers. Because now that there is greater dialogue and sensitization on this issue, right? So it changes a woman's perception of how the institutions and the society view gender-based violence. It emboldens women to talk about this issue and report their own experiences. It's very similar to the implications of the global Me Too movement, right? Where if one person goes ahead and reports their case, that knowledge of sexual harassment became public, which emboldened other women to come forward and report their cases. So I think it is an interplay of all these different changes. And again, because of the changes in the legislative and the policing reform, that may have also enthused more trust in institutions. We are finding some qualitative evidence on changes in police's attitudes and sensitivity towards cases of gender-based violence, which could have also fed into survivors' trust in institutions and encouraged them to report. Yes, very interesting. And so you've touched upon uh, your results briefly, but before we discuss them in more details, could you please also uh, tell us about the data that you've collected, because probably it was not very easy. And so uh, what data did you have and how did you collect it? Right. Yes. Uh, I'm glad you pointed that out because I think one of the key challenges that researchers face in uh, in conducting research on this topic is the data. Uh, data on gender-based violence is not, uh, to the extent possible, it's not as systematically collected or it's not that good quality data. And again, I think uh, the, you know, we also know that all cases that are happening are not being reported, right? So I always put in this caveat in my paper that all the estimates that I'm showing are likely to be a conservative estimate because there's so many cases that don't get reported. So in terms of the data sources, I have used two key sources of data for the crime uh, component, which is my main outcome. So in the main analysis, I have used data from the National Crime Records Bureau of India, which is the nodal agency that collects all the um, data on cases that get reported at the police station. 
all across India. So it gets aggregated from the police station to the district level, then through the state and then national. And in my main analysis, the way the data is structured, I have used a district by year panel. So there are six, um, there are over 700 districts now, but I am confining it to the boundaries of the census of 2011, which was one year before this event took place. So there are 633 districts in my sample tracked over a period of 18 years from 2001 to 18. So that's how the data is structured at the uh, main analysis. Now, to investigate the mechanisms, I have collected new, more granular data, which is at the daily incident level. And this is available only for Delhi. It is a repository of over 300,000 registered cases um, reported all across around 170 plus police stations in Delhi for the period between 2011 to 2015. And uh, I think especially the latter was, uh, was a very extensive data gathering exercise. Uh, while it is in the public domain, it is not uh, easily accessible in, in a digital form for, uh, for researchers to use it readily. So it required, uh, I think I, I learned a lot of new skills <laughs> of scraping and, uh, uh, and structuring the data uh, in different forms. So that was an interesting exercise, but I, I'm, I'm glad that um, I think increasingly um, researchers are also making that push um, both to policy um, and other organizations to collect good quality systematic data on gender-based violence. Yeah, great that you uh, managed to collect that data. I know it from my personal experience is very often it's not easy. In fact, it's right. very difficult to collect uh, good quality data. So I'm happy you managed to do that. And um, so you had your panel data on a district level. And I assume for your estimation strategy, you had to have some regions or districts that were exposed to the incident more than others, right? Exactly. So tell us more about, you know, this exposure to the main incident you were searching about and how do you go about that issue? Right, great. So, you know, as I had mentioned, this was an incident that was a nationwide shock, right? It had nationwide implications. So because of that, it did not exclusively affect a few locations. And consequently, you know, we cannot identify a very pure treatment and a pure control group. But what was there is substantial variation in how different regions or districts, which is at the sub-state level, were exposed to this shock. And that is the variation that I'm exploiting to inform my research design and identify an effect. Now, the question is, how do we measure exposure? So to do that, I have constructed a socioeconomic index, which is made of several socioeconomic characteristics at the district level, all of which are measured at the baseline. So in 2011, one year before the event. And it includes this index, it includes three key components of exposure. The first one is media which represents transmission of information because you know, one needs to know about this incident, the victim and the associated protests in order to be able to get exposed to it and respond to this shock. And to do that, I have measured district specific coverage of traditional modes of media, 
such as newspaper, radio, television, phone, and internet. The second component is having some form of socioeconomic connectedness with the victim of this incident. So being able to relate to her socioeconomic background as well as her families. And in order to do that, I have used an array of demographic indicators, such as female literacy, proportion of urban population, proportion of young population, religion, which is another form of social connectedness. So here the motivation is that if you are able to identify with an individual or a group of individuals in a given event or a circumstance, you're more likely to be exposed to it and respond to it. And then the third element is connectedness with the circumstances of the incident. Now, this case took place in a moving public bus in a public space in the heart of the capital city, right? To encapsulate that, I have used measures of coverage of local transport, such as public buses. So, you know, we want to see that there are certain districts where people claim public spaces more than others. They use public transport more than others, right? So there's a greater sense of relatability to that. So all in all, there are these 10 different indicators, all of which are measured at baseline. I've used several forms of construction to convince myself that these results are not sensitive to how we construct this index. Um, but what we are finding is that uh, across these 633 districts, there is substantial variation based on these socioeconomic characteristics and how much they are exposed to this incident. And so what was your main estimation strategy and what were the main results? Yeah, sure. So the main, um, the main empirical strategy, the method that I've used is a difference in difference method. Uh, which is using this treatment intensity. So as I mentioned that this exposure index, it assigns treatment in a, as a continuum, right? We don't have a pure one and zero approach. It is all these districts are assigned treatment at a continuum between zero and one. In terms of the specification, so I have basically, I'm comparing regions that had higher exposure uh, versus regions that had lower exposure after the shock versus before the shock. So that's how the double difference model is. I've included district and year fixed effects to account for any observed or unobserved changes that are specific to the local region as well as over time that could have affected these estimates. And then lastly, in the preferred specification, I've also included something called state by year fixed effects. And the motivation for doing that is so that in India, a lot of these decisions on policing and law and order, the state governments have the power to legislate on these issues. So in order to account for any changes that could be taking place in an evolving crime climate uh, from the supply side, from the policing side, I've also included this in, in that preferred specification. And in terms of the key headline result, what I find is that regions that were more exposed to this shock witnessed a significant increase in reported rates of violence against women to the tune of 30%. Now, there is some uh, variation across different crime categories. A lot of this is coming from an increase in rape, kidnapping and abduction of girls, sexual assault, and cruelty by husband or his relatives. So these are the four key categories where we are finding this increase.
And so what are the main policy implications of your research? And should there be more public discussions of violence against women? And if so, how can we stimulate the reporting of crimes against women? Right. I think that's a great question. And, you know, uh, when we work on these kind of socially relevant topics, it's very important to carefully think about the policy implications. So just as an initial thought, I think what this paper... Uh, indicates and sheds light on is the fact that public activism can be used as an important policy tool to move the needle on disclosure norms and encourage reporting. So being able to talk more about this, have greater dialogue on this is something that can help. Now, it's not to say that this is the only way forward. It has been given that the issue of gender-based violence is so central and its socioeconomic dynamics are so complex that it cannot be one or the other class of interventions. Now, there's a lot of focus, uh, both among policy as well as researchers have investigated this on institutional reforms, right? So like establishing all women police stations, all women justice centers. In the US, there have been mandatory arrests or no drop policy for cases of gender-based violence. And what I think is that on top of these institutional changes, there is this other class of interventions that we can incorporate, which focuses on enhancing women's intrinsic willingness to report crimes. And this may actually call for a more bottom-up approach rather than a top-down one, where we are able to influence people's attitudes towards gender-based violence, not only in terms of its incidence, but also reporting and even influencing bystander behavior, right? So it's not, when we think of gender-based violence, it's not just a, between the victim and the perpetrator. It's also the bystander. It's also the relatives of the victim. It's, it's a society in general. So if we are able to institutionalize um, these changes at the community level, I think that could be one way forward. And again, I'm not suggesting something which is a eureka moment here. Some parts of this change is already happening. Um, especially, I do think that in the public health space, in, in, um, in especially in South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, where I've recently started working, is that you're finding that community health workers are already really trying to influence changes in public health and education outcomes at the community level. Now, this is an important entry point where if we are able to integrate discussions on gender-based violence through these existing mechanisms, these are things that policies and programs are already doing. If we are able to integrate gender-based violence in that, that's one way moving forward. Yes. Indeed. Well, thank you very much, Abhilasha. It was a very interesting discussion, and I hope that our listeners will learn a lot from, from it and also be um, more aware of the fact of violence directed towards women. So thank you. Thank you so much, Ola. Thanks again for having me. And I hope that we are able to uh, keep talking about this uh, topic because it cannot be just a one-off uh, paper or a one-off change, it, it needs to be a concerted effort. So yeah, I, I hope to continue these discussions. Thank you so much. Thank you, definitely.